seated. It is so good to be back. Um, we had a fantastic time away uh, with family, went camping out in Yellowstone, and uh, just had a, had a great time enjoying God's creation, enjoying the family, um, but we missed you guys, and uh, I, I'm thrilled to be, to be back again to worship together, to open God's Word together. I'm so grateful for that. Uh, today is Family Worship Sunday, so once a month we're going to have the kids join us and participate from start to finish and uh, try to um, engage you guys a little bit. Um, I have those, uh, the fill-ins made, and so if you don't have a fill-in and you want one, um, put up your hand and we will get one to you. We want you to be able to follow along, fill that out, and the secret is uh, if you can fill that out and bring it to me at the end of the service, um, I will have candy. Um, because it's good and rewarding to listen to God's Word. And, and so there's just a little picture of that. Um, so fill that out. If you're too young to fill in the blanks, um, draw me a picture. Um, and uh, draw me something out of the sermon, and, uh, and I'll reward you for that as well. Um, and we want everyone to have God's Word. Um, we want you to have a Bible in your hands. Um, I have no authority. Uh, I have no wisdom to bring today. This is all I have is God's Word. We want to come together under God's Word. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, um, open in front of you. Again, put up your hand and we'll get uh, a Bible into that hand. Um, as well, if, uh, if you don't have a Bible at home or one you can read easily, take this one with you. Um, we're thrilled to see that go out. Um, honestly, if you're sharing the gospel with a neighbor, somebody at work, take it with you. Give these out. We'll replace them as necessary. We love to replace those. Um, but let's turn together. Genesis 16. We're starting to make some, uh, starting to make some, take some ground here as we're moving a little quicker through, through Genesis. That's where we're going to spend our morning, um, Genesis 16. Uh, and I guess, again, before we get, dive in, um, man, Family Worship Sunday, I just want to recognize, yeah, it means a little extra chaos. It means a little extra noise. Parents, that's okay. Um, all of us uh, have been there uh, either as the noisemaker, as the one quieting kids, or are there right now. We totally understand, and so don't sweat that. Um, if you need to apply some discipline and people come and go a little extra, we get it. That's all right. Um, it's family worship. That's what, that's what families do. Um, we, we bear with one another in that. Um, Genesis 16, very uh, interesting chapter uh, of the book of Genesis and, and just walking through this, what comes to my mind, um, you, ever, you ever been downtown in a big city? Um, maybe, maybe Edmonton or Calgary a little bit, but I mean like big, big city, surrounded by tall buildings and busy streets and businessmen in sharp suits and fancy cars coming and going this way and that way, bright lights and advertisements and taxis and traffic. There's, there's so much to see. There's so much going on. But there's one thing that is almost always there and almost never seen. In the hollows of unused doorways or around the corners or often right in the middle of a busy sidewalk, you'll almost find, always find in every city uh, the poor, the homeless. Now, in one sense, they're seen, right? They're not invisible in that sense. They're right there. And yet, how many thousands of people walk by them every day? look right at them, and, and not actually see them. One sense, they are kind of invisible. Take a minute, just let that sink in. Think about what that would be like. Stand in the street corner, standing beside a door, day after day, people coming and going. Some of them would be new faces, some of them would be regulars. You'd see them every day. You'd know their faces, maybe you'd give them nicknames in your head, and yet not one of them would see you. Not one of them would pause to recognize you. What a horrible feeling. What a terrible position to be in. Now, I don't want to belittle the trial of homelessness or be overly dramatic, but at the same time, don't we all feel that at some level? Isn't that a small part of all of our experiences in some ways, we're the most seen people that ever lived, right? We tell our stories on Facebook. We air our 
our, our, our lives on Instagram and, and a half a dozen other platforms that I'm all of a sudden too old to know about, um, we broadcast certain elements of our lives. But when it comes to our pain, our true struggles, does anyone really see them? Does anyone really know what it feels like to be you? And we encourage it. Even when people ask, hey, how are you doing? What do we say? Fine. Keep walking. Nothing to see here. Keep moving. I'm fine. Kids, you're in with us this morning. How often do people not take you seriously? How often do you have something important to say and none of the grown-ups will listen? They keep talking like you're not even there. Or you're crying over something that really bothers you and, and, and nobody seems to think it matters. I think we all have parts of our lives, times of our lives, where there's pain, there's, there's hurt, there's brokenness, there's fear, and there's loneliness that comes with that. We feel totally unseen. Well, Genesis 16 introduces us to the God who sees. A God who sees. Follow along. I'm going to read this chapter for us top to bottom. Genesis 16, starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And Sir Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarai dealt with her harshly, and she fled from her. And the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing for my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over and against his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old uh, when he bore Ishmael to Abram. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true that you have um, revealed yourself to us in plain black and white that we can look at and study and dig into and know that is unchanging. God, help us this morning. Lord, I pray for those um, who come heavy laden, burdened, broken, weary, feeling small and unseen. God, that we might see you all the more clearly. That we might come to trust in and rest in the God who sees. Lord, that you would open our eyes, soften our hearts as we come to your word. Father, I pray for um, Lord, my, my words that I have 
prepared, God, if there's anything that's not of you, that those, those words would just fall to the ground, be left behind, but that your word uh, would go forth. And God, that you would be at work. Build your church. Encourage your, your, your saints. Convict the sinners. Strengthen your church today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take this chapter in just two pieces. Um, first verses 1 to 6. And, and here we see the faithless decision. The faithless decision. Verse 1 reminds us uh, of this, this looming problem. We've seen from um, early on as we've met Abram and Sarai uh, that Sarai is barren. She has no children. She still has no children. God had made uh, great promises to Abram to make him a great nation, to give the land of Canaan to his descendants, to bless the, the whole world through him. Um, but the, the first step in God's fulfillment of, of these promises um, is, is right here. God choosing Abram. Um, he had made the promise back, Genesis 3.15, that he would send a, a rescuer, one who would come and free them from the brokenness and the slavery of sin. And, and Abram is kind of the first step in God moving toward fulfillment there, that he would send a rescuer. That rescuer would be Abram's offspring. And so all of these promises together, they're, they're dependent on Abram having a child, a son. Sarah is barren. She can't have children. Some of you have experienced this. This is a, this is a deep pain in Sarah's heart. Even without all the, the pressure of the, the promises of God hanging on it, imagine the, the weight and the burden of that. But I'm sure this poor lady also just wanted to have children, just wanted to know the, the blessing of having her own children. She must have felt helpless, maybe ashamed, broken, useless, damaged goods. And, and yes, at some level, it's Abram and Sarai who are unable to have children, but no doubt Sarai is bearing this burden in a very unique way. This is a, a sorrow, a loneliness in her suffering that she feels, and, and I, I think it's safe to say she would feel very unseen. Great burden. And this is where we are often so vulnerable, isn't it? When we have hopes and dreams, we have things that we, we want to see happen, the desires of our hearts that go unfulfilled and unmet. And unfortunately, that's what happens here. In Sarai's sorrow and in her pain, Sarai does not trust the Lord. She doesn't look to God. She doesn't cry out to God. She doesn't wait on Him. Sarai decides to take matters into her own hands. Man, how often do we do this? How often do I do this? I'll fix it, God. Your plan seems to be taking a little bit long. I've got a plan. I'll do it. She leads Abram into this faithless decision. She points out to him that she is this female slave girl from Egypt. And she says, why don't you take her as a second wife, as a, a concubine, a slave wife, and, and that way we can have a son. Now you need to understand about Sarai's suggestion. This sounds very foreign to our ears. This is a, a strange, terrible thing. In their world, this was normal. This was the custom. It was the utmost importance to have a male child as your heir. Um, if you couldn't produce that child, any child, or even just couldn't produce a male child, uh, it was very normal. It was culturally appropriate, even expected, um, that you would take one of your wife's servants or handmaidens and, and, and you would produce a child with her. Now, there are a couple of things, a lot of things that could be said here as we kind of wrestle through this. For one, people often look at stories like this in the Bible and they use this to discredit Scripture, right? Look at Abram. He has slaves, that monster. This is one of your great Bible heroes, is a, is a slave owner, and he takes this slave girl as a second wife? This is horrible. What a terrible, terrible person. If the Bible says 
these things are okay. Should we trust the Bible? Oh, look, how, look how archaic and gross the Bible is. Why would you follow this God who has Abram, the, the slave owner? Now, let's be honest here. The Bible's got some sketchy stuff in it. This is ugly. This is messy. We ought to look at this and cringe. This is a horrible, horrible thing that Abram and Sarai do. We're not debating that. You want to talk about abuse of power? You want to talk about the patriarchy? Misconduct? This is it. Not only is an own, a, a slave owner, they don't ask her permission. They don't treat her as a human. They treat her as property. And, and she is absolutely used and abused in a most horrendous way. Yeah, that's in the Bible. That is one of the Bible heroes that we speak of. Let me help you out with something. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean the Bible is saying it's good. Right? It doesn't mean the Bible condones it just because it records it. Scripture's not saying this is good or okay. The Bible has all kinds of stories that are historical. That doesn't mean the Bible is teaching that these things are right and okay. Many of the great heroes of the Bible have multiple wives, and people bring that up. The Bible teaches polygamy. Read those stories, and then just ask yourself, how does this turn out for them? How does this work? Does it work out well, or does this become a disaster? Every time it's a disaster. It's a problem. The teaching of the Bible is these men and women did these things, and it ended poorly. Don't do that. This should actually give us great confidence, actually, in the truthfulness of the Bible. The Bible doesn't have manicured stories of mythical, perfect people. You don't read this kind of sanitized account. Abram is not put up as this great hero. He's put up as a broken man, a sinful man. And we see God at work. It's not curated and manicured over the centuries. It's raw. And it's accurate even about the most painfully honest about the most horrible decisions. And this is one of those times. The great patriarch Abraham made a horrible, evil decision. Another thing that we see here, even if the whole world says it's okay, that doesn't make it good. Right? Even if the whole world says it's okay, that doesn't make it right. If you had brought Abram in his day before the courts, tried him on this, they wouldn't have known what to do. They would have said, what exactly are we looking at? What's the problem here? This is normal. This is what everyone does. This isn't only the right thing to do. This is the obvious thing to do. Um, they, They wouldn't have stopped to consider it. Today we say this is horrible, right? Like this is Harvey Weinstein kind of stuff going on. Um, the world's understanding of right and wrong changes over time. It's constantly shifting and moving, and today it feels like we can watch that happen uh, in real time. That's why we need God's unchanging word. That's why we need a standard of right and wrong that's outside of culture, outside of, hey, what do we think? Compare this situation with Abram and Sarai to to God's creation in Genesis 1. God made Adam and Eve, one man, one woman. He puts them in the garden together. God declares, Genesis 2, 24, therefore, because I created this way, because I've done this, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and those two will become one flesh. That's God's standard for marriage. There it is. That's what's right. Makes it pretty clear. Bringing a slave girl into the mix is absolutely contrary to God's design. Doesn't work. It is clearly and explicitly not God's plan for marriage and family. Never allow the the tolerance of the culture to overshadow the truth of God. Right? Right? God's truth is our foundation. 
Culture is going to come and go and oppose different parts of God's truth at different times and in different ways. We stand unchanging. We, we take God's truth and walk with that. But that's exactly the opposite of what Abram and Sarai did. They're, they're looking at the, the way the culture goes and saying, well, this seems to be acceptable. This seems to be a good way to fix the problem that's in front of us. Such a danger for us today. Uh, the world around us uh, not only tolerates but celebrates all kinds of things that are absolutely contrary to God's design. So tempting, and it would be so easy for us to live our lives according to the, the tolerance of the world. Very difficult to live according to the truth of God. It's, it's going against the flow. It's going upstream every time. And, and there's some obvious ways that we can apply that, and, and we should. That's good and right. This absolutely applies to things like the, the homosexuality movement, the transgenderism movement, no doubt. The Bible is clear. God made them male and female. Um, gender is something created by God with biology. And, and yeah, we can, we can admit sin has made a mess of that. And, and, and sin distorts those things and makes all kinds of pain and confusion in that. We're all corrupted and broken, born in sin. But God's truth is clear. It's good for us to look outwardly and have a clear perspective on that. But there's also a temptation for us to stop there, right? We're the church. We're the good guys. Those are the bad guys. They are doing it wrong. They're deceived. And we can, we can draw those lines out there, and that's comfortable, but let's not stop there. Let's not miss the fact that being deceived by its very nature um, means you don't know it. You don't recognize it. We need to let this truth hit a little closer to home. We need to sometimes move from out there to, to in here. Maybe we should start in here. What are the ways that you are sucked in to the the cultural approval, and you don't even know it. You don't even recognize it. Jonathan Edwards, one of my great heroes. If you've been around here for a while, you've heard me quote him. He was a man of the word, a man who carefully studied the truth, proclaimed the truth with, with passion and, and insight and depth. He was incredibly intelligent. Um, he wrote a list of 70 resolutions. Started when he was 14 and uh, built out this list. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a powerful list. I have a, a poster of it that hangs in our hallway just outside my office. Number 22, one of my favorites. This used to be the, the quote at the end of my email signature. He says this, Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world, it's not about heaven, as I possibly can, with all the power, might, vigor, vehemence, a violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. I'm going to live for eternity passionately no matter what. Number four, he says this, resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God nor be, nor suffer it, if I can avoid it. It's all about God's glory. I'm going to push out everything else. I'm not going to allow that to exist in my life. It's about God's glory. Number seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Like, could I make a day on that resolution? Not to do anything I'd be afraid to do if it was the last hour of my life. Last one, number 37, resolved to inquire every night as I'm going to bed, wherein I have been negligent, what sin I have committed, and wherein I have denied myself, also at the end of every week, every month, and every year. He read these resolutions over every week of his life, and he said, this is, this is what I'm going to be. This is what I'm going to live after. That's just four out of 70 he is an incredibly careful, introspective, dedicated, godly man. And, and you can look closely. You won't see it in his sermons. You won't find it in any of his writings, as far as I can tell. Um, you won't even see it in the vast majority of his biographies. 
But if you look at the listing of his will and estate that he left behind when he died, down in the minutia, you'll see one little comment about the Negro boy, Titus. Wait, what? Jonathan Edwards, this diligently careful, godly man, who by all accounts was no hypocrite, he, he lived this out. His life was impeccable in so many ways. He's a slaveholder. Even pausing every night to think through, is there anything I could do more godly? Never dawned on him. Never thought, I should free my slaves. I shouldn't treat human beings as property. Why doesn't it show up in his writings, his sermons? It's not because he was hiding it. It's because it was totally unremarkable. It was normal. Nobody cared. Jonathan Edwards, who in terms of general holiness um, is, is way out ahead of me. I will never live to the standard of holiness that I see uh, in his biographies and his writing. But he's going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account for this. Something that in our day and age is just atrocious, painfully obvious. Abram and Sarai will have to stand before the Lord and, and give account of their corruption of the marriage bed and, and their abuse of the, the young slave girl, Hagar. What will you have to give an account for? What are the things that, that just fly totally under your radar? You, you've not even stopped to consider it. If the Lord hasn't returned yet, what will the saints a hundred years from now look back and say, really? They were doing that in the church? People who called themselves Christians lived that way? And we don't even see it. Again, not, not things other people do. What are things in my life? Let's not miss this. Just like Abram and Sarai, so often those decisions come out of a place of hurt, a place of pain. Many a Christian has stood firm against the reality that homosexuality is sin until it's their son or daughter and then those convictions begin to move to match their situation to ease their pain many a christian has made a firm stance against dating non-believers till they begin to get a little older begin to wonder about the future and there's no dating prospects on the radar and they begin to lose hope Many a Christian has stood firm on, on financial honesty and integrity, um, faithful, sacrificial giving until money gets a little tight and there's some easy ways to just keep a little more and let a little less go. Many a Christian has been absolutely opposed to, to lewdness and pornography until it's their very favorite show on Netflix that just begins to let things slide in. Every case, the culture would be with you, cheering you on. Go for it. It's good. Enjoy it. We must never let the, the tolerance of the culture drown out the truth of God. Abram and Sarai did. They did. As the saying goes, choose to sin, choose to suffer. The whole thing goes predictably very, very wrong. Hagar became pregnant. She looked with contempt, hatred, anger, bitterness towards Sarai. Sarai blamed Abram. This is all your fault. You did this. I gave her to you, and, and now she hates me. Abram plays the role of a, a deadbeat, passive husband. Boy, there's a, there's a whole marriage seminar here as well. He gave Hagar back to Sarai as her slave. You, you take her. You do what you want with her. I don't care says that Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar and Hagar fled. Now, even the law codes of that day, Hammurabi's code and others, um, they, they, would, they would record this idea of taking the slave on as a second wife. That was okay. You could even return that, that slave back down to a, a slave position. That was okay. But what you couldn't do then was send her away. That was illegal even in their day. The fact that Sarai treated Hagar harshly looks like abusively to the point that she, she ran off. Um, even the culture in that day would have condemned that. The pain of barrenness, feeling broken, 
hurt, unseen. Sarai acts out of faithlessness and sin. Rather than trusting the Lord and and waiting on Him, rather than than even crying out to God, uh, asking, uh, taking her sorrow, her pain to Him, Sarai decides she's going to solve the problem her own way, go her, do her own thing, take matters into her own hands. God's way doesn't seem to be working, so she trusts in her, her own strength, her own wisdom, and it just results in more pain. She's Choose to sin, choose to suffer. This is the the faithless decision. Now let's move to the second half of this chapter. The focus switches for the first time in a while. We're no longer following Abram and Sarai um, and, and their faithless decision. Now we see Hagar. Her story, we see the faithful God. The faithful God. Let's read this second half again, just so this fresh in our minds, starting in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, found Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, and the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and you will bear a son. And you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And he shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over and against his kinsmen. And so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. And therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Take a minute. Wrap your mind around Hagar's situation. Let that sink in a little bit. Abram and Sarai are basically king and queen over a a large, growing enterprise, household. Um, They have no children, but there are a host of slaves. There are families that have attached themselves. Um, Remember when when Lot was taken, uh, Abram was able to rally 318 trained young men from his own household. This is a big group. This is a happening place. Hagar is not only a woman in a culture with a very low view of women, but she is a slave. Worse than that, she's a foreigner, and now she is a single, unwillingly pregnant foreigner. She's out on her own. She is the lowest of the low. She is cast aside, nobody cares, live or die, nobody cares. Overlooked, invisible unwanted, taken advantage of and abused. Now she's fled. Um, so she go, went as far as Shur. Um, Shur is back toward Egypt. She's, she's going back to her homeland. And yet even there, she has very little chance of being able to support herself in any honorable way. And then verse 7 opens with this just astounding statement. The angel of the Lord found her. The angel of the Lord found her. Nobody was looking. Nobody cared. Sarah is probably relieved. Good, she's gone. But the angel of the Lord found her. Now, when you see that specific phrase, the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, not the angel, but the angel of the Lord, that's significant. You, your, your, your eyes ought to open a little wider there. The angel of the Lord is the Lord himself. It's never made explicit, but if you look at the details, it, it just becomes clear. It begins to open up. Um, even just here, look at verse 10. It's the angel of the Lord who says, I will multiply your seed. No angels doing that. This is God's plan. And, and, and the angel of the Lord says, I will multiply you. Verse 13, after the angel of the Lord spoke to Hagar, 
It says, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. That's Yahweh who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. She conflates the two. Uh, This continues through your Old Testament as you're reading. You watch for this phrase. It was the angel of the Lord who appeared to Moses in a burning bush and said, I am that I am. It was the angel of the Lord who appeared to Joshua, said, I am the commander of the armies of the Lord. Who's the commander of the armies of a king? The king. It's the angel of the Lord. Joshua bows down to worship the angel of the Lord. Uh, Manoah and his wife as well throw themselves to worship the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord does what no other angel will do. He accepts their worship. He allows it. This is what we call a theophany. There's your, there's your theology word for the day, a theophany. That's, that's God appearing. So it's God himself who found Hagar. And he asks her, where have you come from? Where are you going? Again, not that he doesn't know, but he's, he's expressing his care, his, his concern. Tell me about your situation, girl. Now, the angel of the Lord is the first person to actually see Hagar, to actually see her. And not only does he see her, but then he blesses her. He gives her a hope and, and future. Verse 10, God says, I will multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Again, this is a, this is a slave girl. Who is she? She's a, she's a nobody. She has no progeny. She has no future. God says, well, now you do. There's a, a nation's going to come out of you. This is similar to the blessing that God gave to Abram. Um, Hagar's son will also be a, a great nation in a sense. As we continue to read, though, through the Old Testament into the New Testament, it becomes very clear this is not the same as the blessing that God gave to Abram. God is not, his, his promises are not going to go through Hagar, but, but through Sarai and through uh, Isaac, this promised offspring um, from Hagar would be blessed. And, and though that offspring, um, sorry, the, the, the offspring of the promise um, would be a blessing to the whole world, the offspring here of, of Hagar says would become a wild donkey of a man. That's a little harsh. Rather than being a blessing to the whole world around him, he would be in constant conflict with the world around him. He would continue um, to fight and squabble, a man of violence. We continue to see this work itself out in our world today. It would be easy to, to oversimplify this and to make it black and white. It's not at all. It is not clear. But Muhammad claimed that he was a descendant of Ishmael. And he taught that the Arab nations were descendants of Ishmael. Ishmael, uh, Islam claims Ishmael was a prophet of God. Sometimes you'll hear, boy, the, the religions of Abraham, right? Like they're one group, those kind of go together. Judaism, Christianity, Islam, they're, they're kind of all cut from the same cloth. No, no, they're radically different. The blessing of Ishmael uh, is not the same as the blessing of God um, through Sarai and through Isaac. The descendants of Ishmael could be blessed if they would come in and bless Abram, as was promised, if they would come to Christ, but it's a different strain. What we see here is God's great compassion on Hagar. In response to Hagar, um, sorry, in response to God's compassion and God's grace, um, Hagar gives the Lord a name. She calls him El Roy, the God who sees the God who sees. And then she names the well, or the, the well maybe from this story over time receives this name, Bir Lahai Roy, which translated uh, the well of the one who lives and who sees. God is alive and he sees. The end of verse 13, um, Hagar makes this declaration, truly I have seen him who looks after me. The lowest of the low, trampled over, discarded, covered in in shame and reproach. But the Lord sees. God cares. 
Abram had looked upon her in a fleshly sense. Sarai had seen her, but only as a tool to get what she wanted. But the Lord found her. The Lord truly, intimately, personally, compassionately saw her. And the God who saw Hagar also sees you. Also sees you. Where are you at this morning? Are you exhausted? <laughs> I tell you what, this week I was exhausted. I just hit that point, I don't know, stupid, right? I just had a week of vacation. I should be like refreshed and excited, and I was until I just, you start looking at the pile of work and the things to do, and I'm like, God, I, <laughs> I can't handle it. This is too much for me. I, I was doing my morning devotions, and I, I was working through the Psalms, and I came to a note I wrote in the margins, Lord, help me to stay humble like this. And I found myself praying, enough, Lord. I can't take any more humility. I, I need a little bit of hope right now. I'm just overwhelmed. It's so easy to feel cast aside, unloved, broken, small, insignificant, overlooked. Maybe it's something significant. Maybe like Hagar, you've been abused. Listen, if that's a current reality, if that's continuing to go on, please come talk to me. Talk to your small group leader. We want to walk with you through that. We want to help you. You should not walk that alone. That's not okay. Maybe it doesn't rise to the level of abuse, but life's hard. You've been hurt. You've been bruised. You've been broken. You're anxious. You're, you're exhausted. Maybe you can't even figure out why. There's, there's no particular thing. It's just where I'm at. It is reality. The Lord sees you. The God of the universe sees you. He sees your pain. Take a minute. Close your eyes if you need to. Just let this sink in. Psalm 139. Just, just listen. Let me read this. O Lord, you have searched me. And you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too Wonderful for me, it is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light to you. There's nothing the Lord doesn't see. There's nowhere you go, nowhere you hide, nowhere you run that God does not see and know. He sees you. And He sees you in compassion, in gentleness, in love. Notice verses 15 and 16 tagged on the end there. Hagar bore Abram a son. So Hagar did go back. She did have a son. And it's Abram who names the boy Ishmael. That means that Hagar um, must have relayed to Abram her experience, what the Lord had said. And, and Abram took it to heart. Hagar returned back not, not only with a son, but with a message from the Lord. Sarai and Abram, in their pain and their sorrow, trying to, to work out God's promises by their own strength according to sinful plans, rebelled against God, sinned against Hagar, sinned against God. But God's not done with them either. He's not written them off either. The name Ishmael, is a word from God for them as well. Ishmael means God hears. 
the Lord met Hagar in her pain in the wilderness. And he sent her back to Sarai with this message of hope for her pain. Now, yeah, it would have come as a rebuke. It would have stung for sure. But ultimately, there's hope there. And this little child running around their house, Abram's son, every time you call him, you're calling, God hears. Where's my son? God hears. Even sinful Abram and Sarai, the Lord is saying, I'm listening. I haven't forgotten you. I haven't abandoned you. The Lord wasn't done with them either. Even when we are faithless, God is still faithful. The Lord is still faithful. And this is really good news for us. Maybe you're listening to this and you're in the place of Abram and Sarai. You've already made the bad decision. It's one thing for me to be broken and weary because I've been sinned against, but I'm the sinner. I'm the one who did it. You've already gone your own way. You've messed up. You've hurt people. You've hurt yourself. You've sinned against God. See, we tend to see the world in black and white. We we like to have white hats and black hats, right? Good guys and bad guys, and they're different. We see people who are sinners and people who are sinned against, but, but it's not that simple, is it? Not one of us is only sinned against. Not one of us is only victim. We are all both sinned against and sinner. We are both hurt and the ones who hurt others. And so we are both in need of God's mercy and compassion and healing in our brokenness and and in need of God's grace and forgiveness in our sinfulness. The Lord's ultimate answer, both to Hagar, who was sinned against, and to Abram and Sarai, who were the sinners in this case, in spite of your weakness, in spite of your sin, the promise will be fulfilled. The rescuer is still coming. I will still be faithful. They're to wait on the Lord. Wait on his plan. Trust in him. God will still fulfill his promise. God himself would once again stoop down. This time, not in a theophany, not in a temporary appearance, but full human bodily form. In Jesus, God would come down and he would see with human eyes. He would enter into our broken existence of suffering and pain. Isaiah 42.3 prophesied this of Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench out. Anybody a bruised reed this morning? (laughs) Reeds are... Reeds are weak. They're fragile. You bruise one and it's just waiting for a breeze to knock it over. Faintly burning wick. It's just barely holding on. We're camping in the rain for a week. We had a couple of those. You've shaved down the smallest little pieces of wood and you light the fire and it's just barely glowing and smoking. Just a breath of wind would put it out. Jesus would not break the bruised reed. He would not put out the smoldering wick. Jesus came as gentle and compassionate. He will bind up the wounds. He will bring healing. He will delicately fan that that ember of life back into flame. Matthew 35, uh, 9, 35, 36. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus came and and he saw. He saw and he cared with with compassion for the, the blind and the poor and the lame, for the leper, for the woman caught in adultery, for the prostitute, for the tax collector. Far from overlooking and discarding the poor and overlooked, he taught in the the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus came as both mercy and grace for those who were both broken and sinful. Kids, I gave you a lot to fill in there. Think about that. Mercy and grace, because we are both broken and sinful. We don't need one or the other. We need them both. And that's why he would go to the cross, so that sinners could be forgiven and so that sufferers could be healed and given hope. He took the penalty of our sin, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God would look away from his son as he poured out his wrath so that he might look toward us and pour out his grace. Jesus underwent the greatest abuse and injustice, not only entering into our human existence, but humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was falsely accused. He was mocked. He was spit on. He was laughed at. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was abandoned by his closest friends. He doesn't just sympathize with our brokenness. He knows it. He's walked it. But he did that so that by his death and by his resurrection, he would undo the brokenness and pain of sin. He would purchase for his children an eternity of peace and life and joy. An eternity where pain and fear and loneliness, the damage of sin, could be once for all wiped away. Far from despising the weak and the humble, those are the exact people he came to save. Listen to Matthew 18. And he called a child and put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We are so enamored with strength and power and, and survival. And, and Jesus says, no, you need to be like that child who is weak, who is humble. Calls us to come to him like little children, trusting in him. The Lord sees you. He sees you as a sinner and he comes with grace and forgiveness and he sees you as hurt and broken and weak, needing compassion and love and healing. And he calls you, come to me. Come to me. Humble yourself like a weak, needy child. And like a child in the arms of his father, find mercy and grace and peace and rest and hope. He is the faithful God. And even when we are faithless, he is faithful. And he's the God who sees we're going to celebrate communion this morning. Roman, if you want to come and prepare to, to lead us in worship.